Hi, everybody. We're back at Dorothy's Place. I'm here with my co-pilot, Pete Davis. Pete, how you doing? Doing great. So glad to be here, Elias, as always. Good to have you. And our guest today is Daphna Levitt. I met Daphna, uh, of course, in a Zoom uh, session. Um, it was run by the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. It's a remarkable collection of serious people who do serious reading. <laughs> it's quite uh, quite out of the ordinary. Anyway, um, I, I'm a fan of Hannah Arendt's and in that class, uh, I ran into Daphna who mentioned very casually, I recall that she had just published a book and having uh, enjoyed her observations, I immediately uh, ran to uh, Amazon to see what this was about and discovered that she's the author of the new Wrestling with Zionism, Jewish Voices of Dissent by Daphna Levitt, L-E-V-I-T, published by Olive Branch Press. So Daphna, thank you for coming. Welcome. Thanks. Let's see. Well, there's a million ways to start this complicated conversation. You know what I want to start with? I wonder if you would mind, because usually we begin with a biography of sorts, but I wondered if you could do a little bit of that, but also might offer any memories of what it was like to grow up in the country of Israel, which I'm sure Pete and I don't readily imagine. So could you tell us a little bit about that? So um, I was born in Israel many decades ago and uh, uh, forgive my uh, American sounding accent, but I could use an Israeli accent if you prefer. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. Fair. You're quite authentic. <laughs> we don't need it. It's fine. <laughs> um, let's see. Growing up in Israel, it's a very different country today than it was when I was growing up. Um, we were very secular. We didn't even think of ourselves as Jews. Being Zionist was sort of normal. That's what everybody is, isn't, you know, it's not even a distinction of any sort. Mm -hmm. So I think to a large extent, I was convinced that the uh, Israeli Zionist secular narrative was the only one. Mm -hmm. Everybody around me was just like that. But basically the education system was, uh, that I attended, it's, it's quite changed now, was one where uh, God was our country. And we were all sort of convinced that being a soldier in God's army that meant being a soldier in Israel's defense forces and that we should be happy to sacrifice our lives for the sake of our country. Um, things became different for me um, after I finished serving in that honorable army. Huh. Um, and that was meant in quotes. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I suddenly realized that there may be other narratives. Um, and one of the most striking events, which I think I describe in the book, Wrestling with Zionism, was I was a press liaison officer on the Allenby Bridge uh, yes. and watched the Palestinians refugees flee from Israel. And I kept thinking, why are they mm. fleeing from us? We are the good guys, aren't we? Mm. And it took me a long time to recognize and to understand that being convinced of a national narrative means that you really haven't had time to think critically about that national narrative, mm -hmm. that it sort of subsumes everything else in your life. Yeah. I guess that's one of the reasons that I was drawn to Hannah Arendt um, in many ways. But mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I answered the question sufficiently. Yeah, yeah, we should say that was 1967. It was a when I was an officer in the army, yes. Now everybody knows how old I am. Oh no. Yeah, I, I've learned from your book that that really is, that year is the linchpin to understand the rest of uh, Israeli history, right? Right. Well, there's a lot of happening. Um, there was a lot happening in the 
uh, this is a lot. There was a little bit of turmoil happening. It should have been a lot more because documents that had previously been hidden were suddenly uh, open and a lot of people started to read those documents mm. and realized that the historical narrative with which we were brought up and educated and fully believed in was slightly different. Mm -hmm. That Israel had done things that we were not or we should not be too proud of. Um, so that's a turning point for many people. In the book, I describe um, a group of intellectuals called the New Historians mm -hmm. who base their shift in perspective to that period, uh -huh. to the period of great change, which was a pivotal year in the, his, in the modern history of Israel, which was 1967, yeah. or as it's known, the Six-Day War. Yeah. I'm so interested in folks that you mentioned in this book, like um, Martin Buber and Albert Einstein, mm -hmm. where it seems like they are embodiments of two tensions that are in uh, this strain of Zionism, which is figures like this were very interested in the utopian ideals of Zionism, but those same utopian ideals led them to kind of international humanitarianism as well. Um, and eventually the tension is between this humanitarian impulse and the original dream. So, you know, you have Albert Einstein promoting this, but he also, you know, is promoting the UN and promoting an end to all wars and, you know, taking this on as his great kind of intellectual challenge after shaking up civics. Um, and um, I'd love to hear about how kind of in the, this generation where the same impulses were inside of them and the seeds of the tension uh, were, were both uh, sown. Um, uh, in this period in the 50s and 60s? So Martin Buber um, was actually born at the end of, in 1878 or 1880. Something yeah, like yeah, that. he's much earlier than much Einstein. Earlier. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and Albert Einstein was a year older, only one yeah. year older. Oh. So they much precede the period um, that I you know, grew up with and 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 the narrative was so completely entrenched. For Albert Einstein, he became interested in the sort of uh, Zionist state, primarily because he came into contact with the same um, spiritual sort of powerhouse of Zionism at the time and he, that, that Hannah Arendt did, which is Kurt Blumenfeld. Um, and he, supported Zionism in the sense that he supported uh, Jewish sort of independence, the idea of Jews having their own state. That kind of dream was part of the zeitgeist of that period when people believed in sort of the idea of being free to express themselves in their own language, being free to practice their own religion, being um, emancipated, and the Jews never were. For Albert Einstein had a period that he flirted with Judaism, as I wrote in the book, and then decided that he was dis disillusioned with religion altogether. He left Judaism. But the idea of, of, of Zionism still intrigued him, except that he believed in the same um, sort of idea that I talk about in the schism between the political Zionist movement and the cultural Zionist movement, because he did not believe that uh, an army should have a country, which was what Israel was evolving into. He was a pacifist. He ended his days as a pacifist. He had endured the horrors of being castigated um, by the German intelligentsia and the German physics um, elite even though he was such a genius. Um, in fact, he, as I wrote in the book, renounced his German citizenship <laughs> several times, uh, I think at least twice. Huh. But he ob objected to any sort of politics that would uh, encourage 
national entities that were living in the same area that would perpetually be at war with each other. This was sort of the, the concept of cultural Zionism, which Buber before him also endured. Now, Martin Buber was a uh, psychologist, philosopher. He had many hats. Um, but one of the things that um, made him very important was that he introduced uh, Hasidism. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but the Hasidic uh, um, sort of aspect of Jewish mysticism, shall I call it that, Jewish mysticism into um, the contemporary uh, academic world. Before that, nobody really spent a lot of time dealing with the Hasidic movement. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he, he introduced that. But for him, he always believed that Zion is a, um, is a, is a holy place. It's a spiritual place. It's not a geographical place. Mm -hmm. And therefore, he wrote that, you know, Zion must be born in the soul. So for Israel to have um, the Bible as its geography book and to um, justify its um, existence in that particular prescribed place, he thought was wrong. It was not. It was not right to do that. I don't know if I've answered your question. No, that was very helpful. Thank you. You know, there's a wonderful, uh, or more like striking, quote from Buber in your book about um, the great Jewish purpose being the up uh, upbuilding of peace, and his criticism. Um, of those who merely want to join the wolf pack, as he calls it. And he goes on, if we are not acceptable in the pack, it's enough to live on its fringes, in its neighborhood. Um, of all the many kinds of assimilation in the course of our history, this is the most terrifying, the most dangerous, this nationalist assimilation. That which we lose on account of it, we shall perhaps never acquire again. So the whole Zionist movement emerged sort of in the late 19th century in response to, you know, nat other nationalist movements that were going on in the world. And Buber felt that um, the two main streams um, that encouraged the development of Zionism were the, the Jewish Enlightenment movement, which is called the Haskalah, and the... Um, one other thing that emerged, um, yeah, just, oh, assimilation. Assimilation had been a very strong, powerful force that some Jews believed would solve the problem of discrimination against Jews. So if Jews cut off their earlocks and stopped living in ghettos and learned the language of the cultures that they were living in, that they would stop being the targets of discrimination. And so assimilation was one thing. And the opposite of that was obviously the idea of forming your own nation. Um, and he believed that assimilation was a, a sort of a pre pretense. It wasn't authentic. You were never going to be able to discard that which is truly you. Um, and Hannah Arendt also said that. She said, being a religious Jew is a matter of choice, but being Jewish, yeah. I can't do anything about that. Yeah. He believed, Buber believed, that you have to basically, um, if you are going to form a country on your own, the only justification for that country is for it to be Jewish in its spirit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to uh, obey all the laws of the halacha, which is the law book of, of the Jewish faith, but you have to have it in spirit or else there's really no justification for you having a nation. Hmm. So if you want to be a nation like every other nation, which means you're going to have an army and you're going to fight wars and all of that, there's really no reason or justification for having a nation. I'd love to, you know, I think we'll get, be working through the content of this throughout the conversation, but kind of on a um, process level, I'd love to hear about your experience. You know, I, you, you mentioned why you got turned on to this issue back in the late sixties, but um, your experience becoming a writer on it. 
um, it becoming a writer and sharing kind of, you know, with Israeli rejectionism, sharing kind of very controversial statements to certain people. Um, we see what happens when folks kind of uh, uh, open up these debates. Uh, and I'd love to just hear what your experience has been um, uh, kind of writing these two books uh, and be becoming vocal in this. Uh, so the two debate. books didn't make me vocal because both book, books were written while I was safely ensconced on an island in Nova Scotia, <laughs> facing absolutely zero, well, I think, zero <laughs> physical threat. But the evolution um, of thinking, I was very active in Israel in a variety of human rights groups. Um, B'Tselem just came out. B'Tselem is a human rights group you may have just seen maybe they came out with an, um, uh, an indictment of Israel as an apartheid state. It's an Israeli human rights organization. Um, I was active with them. Um, I was active with um, Doctors for Human Rights, which is the equivalent of Médecins Sans Frontières, but it's the Israeli version. Um, I was active in an organization founded by one of the people I write about in the book, Uri Avneri, which was called Gush. Shalom, or the peace block. So I, there were a lot of others that I that I was um, involved in, and because I am um, I, I am linguistically not so challenged. Um, George Mitchell, um, if you remember him, um, had uh, had uh, uh, had is needed a translation of the autopsy reports after the first intifada. So I was the translator of those Whoa. autopsy reports, which is another element in my conversion to realizing that this is not acceptable to me, um, that committing uh, human rights violations and crimes against humanity in the name of a nation was not something acceptable to me. Um, so I've been involved for a long time. Um, there is an organization in, in, in Israel which was defended against the demolition, still is, defends against the demolition of Arab houses in various territories, including Jerusalem. And um, I, was, I was one of the people that stood in front of the bulldozers to prevent them from destroying houses. If you heard of Rachel Corey, you might know the story that she was actually killed by one of those bulldozers. Um, and she was a volunteer, a Christian volunteer to oh. Israel to prevent the destruction. Um, I was involved in um, uh, an organization called Ta'ayush, which is an Arab name, um, an organization of Israelis and Palestinians to supply water to um, various um, people in the West Bank primarily because we couldn't get into Gaza, but in the West Bank who um, settlers basically did everything they could. The Jewish settlers who took lands, destroyed olive trees and contaminated water supplies. So we would uh, deliver bottled water. I mean, that's sort of my personal evolution, uh, never alone, always with others. You know, I'm just thinking Daphne, in my case, the two windows that I had uh, into questions around Jewish identity and Israel and everything. Um, and, and so far as I understand it yet, is one, the Holocaust and the way it's taught. And secondly, originally coming from kind of a small town Baptist background in Texas, I, I guess maybe some very early forms of Christian nationalism. But, but starting with the Holocaust first, it's very striking what you had to say about the Holocaust industry, as it's called, and the uses of the Holocaust, because I think there is a lot of uh, perplexity of, on the part of, you might say, well-meaning Christians to try to understand what, what does this mean, you know? And so some people would like to offer ready-made explanations for a particular purpose. But first, maybe you could comment on that, the, the Holocaust part. Yeah, so the Holocaust is, 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 very, is a very big part of the national consciousness mm -hmm. in Israel. Um, the Ashkenazi Jews who uh, came from Europe, many came 
after the Holocaust, although um, my ancestors, I'm third generation Israeli on my mother's side. So that would mean well before the Holocaust. And my father came to Israel from Germany in 1933. Hmm. So that is, uh, <laughs> that's before the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yet he came from Germany and believed that his culture was German. Um, as did Hannah Arendt. He was born the same year as Hannah Arendt. Um, so I think that the Holocaust is a pervasive part of what we are taught. We are not taught history of the region as much as we are taught the history of the Holocaust. And Israelis have used this, the national legend, the national mythology that was created as early as the, the beginning of the state of Israel uh, used the Holocaust as justification for the creation of a Jewish state and also as a, a creation, as a justification for any wrongs that Israel does or would do. Um, I think that the fact that it's there and it's part of a very strong, you know, emotional background is undeniable and perhaps it should remain part of that. But if you live in a world that is entirely dominated by your own national legend and you have no idea about what's going on in the rest of the world, mm -hmm. and I'd like to just digress for a minute, Hannah Arendt calls this in her many studies of Jewishness in the world, she says that the Jews lacked a sense of their of the, of the context of the history in which they live, which meant that they were weaker. They didn't understand the history in which they live. So I find that Israel has intentionally blocked itself from understanding the context in which it lives. And there are other holocausts or equivalent horrors. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Indiana in at Bloomington, yeah. the subject of my research was a study of, it was in comparative literature, it was the study of the literature written by survivors of the atomic bomb as compared to literature written by survivors of Auschwitz. Wow. It was not a very popular subject. Um, <laughs> people didn't feel that, that, that we should even compare. And I wasn't comparing the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. I was comparing yeah. the expression of it by artists. Wow. Anyway, wow. so yes, to answer your question, the Holocaust is very pervasive. I think that there has become a trend in which writing about the Holocaust and absolving yourself from anything that you could be doing wrong by saying, yes, well, we have the Holocaust is, is a horrible thing to do. Mm -hmm. Even to the memory of the victims of the Holocaust. Yeah. yeah. My um, I'm half Jewish on my dad's side and Which he is not Jewish, Pete. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know on my dad's side. And, um, and, <laughs> and um, I his generation, you know, he was born in 1942. So very part of the very earnest early 60s lefty generation in America of American Jews. Um, there was still at that moment when he was coming of age, some lingering idealism in the what you refer to as maybe the great democratic Jewish promise, or you know the there was or part of it was you know the the lowercase s socialism of the of the kibbutz of uh, you know he remembers he told me a story of he worked at a kibbutz um, during his kind of youthful trip to Israel. Uh, first season and the vice president of the country did a shift with him and it wasn't for a photo op it was just a normal part hmm. of kind of being part of a solidaristic nation and um, I'd love to hear you know about that dream and how that plays into this not just the nationalism but also the lowercase s socialism or solidarity um, dreams that I think played a large role in people's kind of mid-century Zionism, especially people on the left, um, and, and what your take is on that and what happened with that. So that's what I was saying, that the Israel I grew up in was that Israel. You know, it's gone. It's the kibbutz, the whole kibbutz institution is gone. Kibbutzim are now either hotels or for-profit organizations. But at the time, the kibbutz was an ideal. It was an ideal that, you know, a lot of us 
believed in and we thought that we had figured it all out. But one of the people that I write about in the book is a woman who is a, a socialist to this day. And she thinks that Israel's socialism all along was um, supported by the bourgeoisie, that the Israeli socialists never actually participated in any socialist revolution and that therefore uh, they really uh, were part of the colonialist movement and that it is very difficult to be a socialist and a colonialist at the same time. I do believe that the time that your dad was in Israel, at the time that I grew up in Israel, I don't think I ever heard the word colonialist. I don't think I ever thought about it. But I did belong to a socialist youth group. I mean, the whole thing was, it, it was some sort of like, I don't know, Peter Pan story. It was mythology. It was, it was wonderful. We were all together and we were all for each other and we're all going to grow up in this kibbutz and we're all going to raise olive trees together. <laughs> so I spent time, a lot of time on kibbutzim in Israel. And when I was first in the army, I joined a part of the army, which is called the Nahal. And the Nahal basically meant that you spent time on a kibbutz. Um, so I spent lots of time on a kibbutz. It was still an ideal. And then it shattered because it's, it's, it's a dream. It's not there anymore, Pete. So don't go looking for it. <laughs> do you think it could have gone a different way or do you think it was always a dream? I always thought it, you know, that, that, that the kibbutzim would last forever. But if you look at the politics of Israel, not just the whole colonial enterprise, because I really don't believe you can be a socialist and a colonialist at yeah. the same time. But if you look at the way that the politics of Israel has moved, ever since Begin, and I can't remember his exact dates, I'd have to look it up and then I'd be looking somewhere else on the screen. But um, when Begin was prime minister of Israel, ever since then, every government of Israel has moved further to the right. And by right, I don't just mean nationalist, but also much more capitalist, um, that there has been an, a surge in the bourgeoisie or the upper middle class that, you know, the whole idea of the industrial, uh, agricultural part of Israel has become much less glamorous, much less supported. Yeah. So I think it's parallel to that movement to the right. As we become a nation of an army or an army of a nation, I don't think there's much room for the socialist spirit. Uh, Daphne, I want to come back to Hannah Arendt for a moment. And I want to ask you first how you came across her work. And then secondly, uh, as you talk about in the book, you know, how she might have um, influenced your understanding of uh, Israeli history and your own history there, sort of her impact on your thinking. Well, she's one of the more influential people on, on me, I'd say she's kind of my heroine. Mm -hmm. In fact, on Sunday night, I, I led a group dis discussion in Canada on um, Eichmann in Jerusalem, and the poster had uh, uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem by Hannah Arendt, discussion by Daphna Levitt, and my name was right underneath hers, and I want that poster so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so thrilled. Cool. Yeah. Um, so first of all, uh, in Israel, her name was never mentioned. Her, book were ne or her books were never translated. Even the books and her essays and her work on her Jewish writings were never translated into Hebrew. Hmm. Nobody would speak her name. She was by many, if they knew of her considered Heidegger's, Heidegger the Nazi's whore. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, it was really quite, it was quite a banishment. What do you call it when, when excommunication, yeah. the whole yeah. Israeli society had excommuted oh. Hannah Arendt because she dared to write in the Eichmann book in, um, 
the um, banality of evil to represent Eichmann as banal because they didn't really understand what she meant by that, but that was <laughs> horrific because he was supposed to represent the demon, the devil, the dark side. And she insisted that, you know, you cannot have a trial where you've already convicted the guy as absolute evil <laughs> and evil can never be radical anyway. That's a conclusion she came to. I think I was interested in her, first of all, because my sister, who is many, 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 many years older than I am, like to make that point, <laughs> was a stenographer at the trial itself. Oh, really? wow. So, yeah. So, um, and since my family came from, my father's family was German Jewish, we knew Gidon Hausner and we knew some of the judges who all were good German Jews. The word for a German Jew in Israel is Yeke. That's the term we use. Um, it's somewhat derogatory and somewhat amusing because in Israel, the German Jews were considered to be very straight laced, had no sense of humor, couldn't uh -huh. take a joke, mm -hmm. which is completely not true about my father. <laughs> right, right. So that's how I came to her. But I think that um, the thing that, that was interesting to me was in the origins of totalitarianism, um, which was sort of the book that you know how when, you're, when your ears are stuffed and you kind of mm. shake your head and they pop open? Yeah. That was my ear popping uh, right. book. It was like, oh my God, now I get tremendous, it. Tremendous book. I agree. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, that, the, that the trial that she went through in terms of being ostracized by, you know, the Jewish community for daring to think differently. Mm -hmm. And when I read the book, I, I really didn't understand what it is that they're so upset about. She yeah. did portray him as someone who couldn't think. Mm -hmm. And for her, that was the worst thing you could possibly be. Yeah. yeah. So um, I don't know if I've answered this question. The, the questions that you ask are so wide that, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to... Just jump, jump in anywhere you anywhere you like. Um, yes, no. She had the same. She had the same impact on me, and I remember w wondering why is this controversial? This seems reasonable, straightforward. Um, but you're right. It's it's against the other interpretation. Is that uh, if if Eichmann is not a monster, then the Holocaust is not exceptional. But and it, also, since she knew and she exposed this quite clearly that what Ben-Gurion wanted, she did not like Ben-Gurion. Uh, Most of the people in my book, the characters I portray, did not like Ben-Gurion. Mm -hmm. But she did not like him because she thought that what he was trying to do was to stage a play on the history of Jewish suffering. Mm -hmm. And that would justify Zionism because Zionism was the only way out of Jewish suffering. That was his premise. So it had nothing to do with Eichmann. Mm -hmm. And she exposed that. She said, you know, if you want a trial of Jewish, you know, a history, a, a play about human suffering, then you drag in all these suffering people who had legitimate suffering, horrible histories. And they testified. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen, you've seen the Margaret von Trotte movie, right? Which is yes. brilliant. It's, yes. Yep. yep. I mean, most of it, half of it at <clears throat> least is documentary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There in America, and we talked about this a bit by email beforehand, so feel free to, um, if you want to skip this question, we can, uh, we don't have to go down this path, but. We can edit this um, and cut out what, stories. <laughs> what'd you say? I was saying we can edit this so we can cut out anything we don't want to keep. Yeah, yeah. In America, there is a very, very strange interaction uh, between Israeli nationalism and evangelicals, uh, evangelical Christians in America, um, where, you know, at its most extreme end, it's mega church pastors with everyone in the crowd waving Israeli flags. Um, and it's connected to this kind of book of revelations interpretation of, you know, uh, if, if uh, Israel is preserved, then the rapture will come or 
this, that, or the other. Um, I don't mean to belittle it, but it is a little out there. And um, and uh, and it also leads to kind of a certain creepy fetishization of Jews by these kind of people who have no connection in areas where there's a very low population of Jews anyway. So it's almost all mediated through text and screens and not through knowing anyone. Um, and I'd just love to hear... Uh, uh, your kind of if you have any takes on on that or uh, how that's played into the story in recent years, I guess it would be since the 70s or 80s when kind of evangelical Christianity uh, uh, reared its head again in American politics. It's really an interesting story. Maybe I'll think about it for another book. Yeah. But if you if you recall, in the beginning of my book, I talk about Christian Zionism as one of the impetuses, impetus side, how do you make that world, to um, the, the, the Jewish Zionist movement and that, you know, the Blake poem that you all sing the hymn. Oh, Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, being, you know, <laughs> an impetus for the concept or the coining of the word Zionism. So I'm not sure if it has anything to do with Israel and than the political state of Israel, but it certainly has to do with a tradi tradition before Israel even came into being of, of, of Christian Zionism. Um, I, I don't think it's a new evolution. I think in America, what you had was, and this is, I'm not an expert on the subject, but it seems to me that it's been politicized, that Israel became sort of a, an easy vehicle for many administrations, particularly the most recent one before Biden, um, to use as a as a sort of um, I don't know a, a unifying get the vote of all the Jews because all the Jews in America are monolithic and they all think alike mm -hmm. kind of uh, environment. Um, but I don't think it's true, and I don't think that um, that. <laughs> I am, I am against it, obviously. I find that the support, that blind support for Israel that occurred as a result of equating it with a transcendent or religious concept totally ignores the immorality of the political moment. And I think that that's what really bothers me. Whether they then want to... Um, whether the second coming or the rapture will occur or not, you know, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that they have to support <laughs> the horrific policies of creating, you know, I don't know, shooting live bullets at rock throwing children. I, I don't see that as a justification to support every single horrible policy of annexation, occupation, militarization of Israel. Mm -hmm. it's that's a, like my a, take on it. I don't know if that's what you meant, but. Yeah, no, no, that's, I was thinking it's a little bit like the manipulation of the Holocaust story. This is the man manipulation of Christian theology in order to accomplish some very real world um, critical or, or dangerous, I should say, things. And it feels like a movement, just like Trumpism feels like a movement. It feels like this is beyond politics, as though he's not really do. He's never really been doing politics. He's been doing something else. And so this thought world of evangelical Christianity, uh, for various reasons, finds that very um, uh, attractive. What frightens me about um the crazy lunacy of some of the Trump supporters, which we could consider fringe and we could say, okay, once we have Biden and we have some, some sort of normalcy restored to America that this will diminish. But what scares me is if you look at Israel as an example, the craziness has only been augmented, which is why I can't go back. Huh. The settlers have become more powerful. The right has become more expressive, more intransigent. So it really terrifies me that if America, you guys, don't solve this problem of the crazy lunacy, that it might even get stronger. And that is 
yeah. horrible. Unless, of course, there is a rapture, in which case, great. <laughs> Let's go. Not counting on. What do you think are the prospects for peace um, and for kind of justice for the human rights violations? You know, I've heard some people say the generational change might be is the path forward and it's just hope in the younger Israelis uh, that will change the politics there, which is also kind of the hope in America right now. Um, the other is that it's all about America and, you know, if America can kind of loosen the grip of kind of APAC on Israel policy, that would be an answer. Um, and then that could help the path forward and others are very uh, pessimistic. So um, what do you, you know, and I'd say throw in a third one, which is kind of the tech, general techno optimism of more people connect to the internet, more people seeing images, more people knowing what's going on. Um, that might be the answer. Do you, uh, do you fall into one of those camps on looking towards the future? So my, my view on that has evolved. When I wrote the first book, Israeli Rejectionism, which was right after the Gaza invasion, um, I was very pessimistic and I said, I don't see any hope for Israel. Um, right now, I don't live there. So I've removed myself from the pain of seeing my country stolen by crazies. But... Um, <laughs> But I do read everything that I can out of Israel. And I am inspired by various groups in Israel now of young people. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're called Breaking the Silence or Yeshtin, or there's a whole bunch of people who refuse to serve in the army. Um, I, am, I am hopeful that, that this will happen, that they will carry some idea of justice. To, to the craziness that's that's gone on there. But the situation of the Palestinians is dire also because they really have had um, no support from international, uh, especially not from the United States. So, and, and you know, they've, they've been the sort of the, the butts of the whole Middle East tragedy. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm hoping that the younger generation will take up the fight and I don't know are you hopeful about that in the states I'm, a, I'm hopeful being there. <laughs> I'm hopeful for the U.S. I don't know the details of uh kind of millennials in, in Israel but um I I do think polls are show you know I, I I do believe polls show that the conventional wisdom that people get more conservative with age is not true. People usually lock in their political beliefs around 20. And, um, and uh, the polls show that people under 40 in America are much, much to the left of people over 40 um, by a 20 to 30 point gap. And I just think that's gonna hold unless some clever, creepy political entrepreneur drives another wedge between people. But, um, and so uh, I guess that's the question. I guess another angle to this is just, I've, I've always wondered about secularization and how that plays a role in this. Because I, I you know, as an outsider, I wonder, does sec is secularization a problem? Because then you just get kind of what, a Christian would call pagan nationalism or something? <laughs> or, um, or is secularization good because it just kind of generally leads to people loosening their attachments to, to everything um, with regard to this problem? Like, uh, I just wonder, you know, with, with all of the, the one defining connection of a lot of people in the younger generation is there's not a lot of connection to things bigger than self. It's a very atomized uh, generation internationally. Um, and I just wonder if atomization, though I think that's causing a lot of problems in America, uh, could kind of the loosening of the spiritual stories lead to people not feeling so kind of a grip on these nationalism stories. I don't know what's your, an uneloquent way of saying it, but what, what, what do you think about so that transition? The whole concept of Zionism was actually, uh, as I write, 
started by secular Jews. Yeah, that's why it's strange. I don't and, really know which yeah, quest, and, which direction know, it goes in. Yeah, and so when I was growing up, I, I really didn't know any religious Jews, except for my grandfather who, on my mother's side, who was born in Israel and was a rabbi, but he was a very moderate rabbi. You know, none of that black stuff. Um, but um, he couldn't eat at any of his children's houses because none of us kept kosher. So he ate at the house of one of his sons who was married to a convert from Italy who was Catholic and became Jewish, but hers was the only house of his six children at who, where he could eat. Wow. Anyway, so basically I grew up in a totally secular country and I believed that Israel would remain secular where nationalism, as I said, was our religion. I got disillusioned with that religion. The problem is that the most um, obvious trend in Israel, along with nationalism, has been um, a growing power to religious parties in Israel. And by religious parties, I don't mean moderate religious. I mean extremely religious. And the extremely religious Orthodox community in Israel is... I think terrifying because it is no different from uh, any any cult. It's the rabbi says, and you do what the rabbi says. And the rabbi could be a horrible human being, and he could be uh, disobeying all civil laws, but nobody will complain because he's the rabbi. So we've had atrocious things happening, um, and it's a return to the Middle Ages. It is also preventing, for example, right now, even in the States, you had Orthodox Jewish communities who will not abide by the Corona laws, you know, to protect against Corona because God is a bigger force and he will defeat this virus. So let's all have big weddings and kiss each other. The, the, the whole concept of Orthodox Jewry in Israel terrifies me, along with the nationalism. So I don't think that secularization is something that will deprive people from believing in something spiritual, because I don't think that the spiritual has necessarily to be a, um, what is it, a prescribed religion. It doesn't have to be Judaism as it was in the Middle Ages. It could be the idea of humanism. It could be a variety of different things that you believe in, um, as in say in Hannah Arendt, the idea of plurality, that we are all part of togetherness, a sort of, you know, a diversity of human beings. And in Israel, that's, that's not religion. That's not Judaism. Right. So secularization to me is important. I, I want Israel to stay secular, but aware of the world and not retreat into its Jewish uh, separatist sort of isolation. Um, mm -hmm. I don't believe that, that religion is the answer, certainly not what Judaism today in Israel is like. Yeah, yeah. In the book, uh, Daphne, you use a term I've never seen before, and it intrigued me, Israeliness, as opposed to Jewishness. Could, could you unpack that a little bit? And, and what do you think that word ought to mean if it doesn't already mean something you see as positive? So I was using it in reference to one of the people I write about, whose name is Shlomo Zan. Um, and he believes that right now, he doesn't want to be a Jew anymore because he doesn't want to belong to that group of people with uh, right. uh, pr privilege and who can act as they will with no concern for human rights and take everything for themselves. But he doesn't want the end of Israel because he was brought, he was brought up in Israel. His language is Hebrew. It's not the Bible. It's not biblical Hebrew. But we Israelis have a literature. We have a poetry. We have music. We have a culture that is, and, and food, and, and theater, and film, and all that, which is contemporary, which is not, not related to religion necessarily, but was created within the framework of a living Hebrew language. 
um, we don't speak English in Israel, we speak Hebrew. Um, and it is a language that's very rich um, and, and has its own culture. So he considers himself an Israeli and he doesn't want that to be eradicated or erased. Lovely, lovely. Got it. Daphne, this is really good on exactly what I was, was hoping we could talk about. Um, by the way, who I'd like to ask you one, one final thing for our audience who tend to be kind of bookish. Um, I wondered if you would mention a few authors that you like, not necessarily political, but just in general, um, for someone looking for a short reading list of wonderful Israeli authors, who would you, who would you like to recommend? Well, if you're talking about, um, if you're talking about uh, political writers, the, the one okay. book that I think um, everybody should read, and he's mentioned, is he's one of the chapters, but his take on the history of Israel is so natural and complete and fair. He's a historian called Tom Segev, hmm. and the book is called One Palestine Complete. It's probably the most accessible book on the history of contemporary Great. Israel. Great. There's so many of them. Let's see if I can sc scroll through. Um, uh, who, is your, guys, who is your favorite novelist? Well, I particularly like um, the guy who wrote His Son Died, and he wrote this amazing book about the death of his son. David Grossman? Or? Yes, I love David Grossman. Oh, yes. I don't know this name. I don't know. Oh, David name. Grossman is a wonderful writer. He's just brilliant. Hmm. Um, there's a, there's a Palestinian writer that I really like who's been writing recently. He's also had a television. Uh, um, he's also directed or produced a film, Sayyad Kashua. He's an Israeli Arab. I guess like I'm reading Hannah Arendt. I'll drop it. I'll drop it in the, in the uh, notes. The what I'm notes. reading right now. Oh, well, of course. Of course. Wait, since, since this is an audio experience. Oh, this I don't know. Reflections by Benjamin. Yeah, so it's like right now, like my head is all with them rather than with Israeli yeah. writers. No, right, right, I get it. <laughs> and, the, and the human and condition. By Hannah Arendt. Yeah, great. <laughs> Doctor, this is this is great fun, and more than fun. This is uh, one of the most uh, fascinating things I know to think about, particularly with Arendt involved in the conversation. So thank you so much for agreeing to do it. The book is just, it's intellectual history at its very best. You know, it's, it's one of those books for me that it means that instead of reading the 500 page tome about the history of a country, these, these individual profiles pull you through the history very painlessly and interestingly, it's, it's a, a wonderful way to get a grasp on um, uh, a subject that, that otherwise can be a daunting one. So thank you again, Daphna and Pete. Take care.